special junior church lesson. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, I don't, I don't know about all that daylight savings stuff. I mean, when you think about it, everybody set their clocks forward Sunday, Sunday morning. That only hurts one group of people, doesn't it? People that want to go to church. So I think we should start daylight saving times on Monday rather than Sunday. And I'm ready to start a revolution over it. <laughs> Let's uh, take our Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 38 and verse 12. We're continuing our, our verse by verse teaching through the book of Genesis. One of the difficulties of being a verse by verse teacher is you can't dodge subject matter. And I heard some of you gasping as the verses were being read. Like, what, what, what is that? What version is that? It, all of this uh, comes uh, as God is raising up a nation, the nation of Israel. He did that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Israel is a big deal, and it will always be a big deal, because God said, I'll bless the world through Israel. No Israel, no Jesus. No Israel, no Bible. Uh, no Israel, ultimately no Christianity. It's kind of interesting that Israel can explain its existence without Christianity, but Christianity cannot explain its existence without Israel. So Israel is really the foundation and the fountainhead of God's entire program, and that's why the book of Genesis in painstakingly detail is explaining how that special nation came into existence. It's the only nation that was created by God himself. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 43, you'll see, I believe it's chapter 43, you'll see words like Barah and Asah concerning the formation of Israel which are words that are used in the creation account in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, etc. Just as creation itself came into existence through the special care of God, the same as the nation of Israel. So Israel is born, but Israel has a problem because if Israel had stayed in Canaan, she would have morally deteriorated. That moral deterioration is evident in this chapter. That's why it's so graphic. God has to get his people out of wicked Canaanite society and get them into Egypt where the shepherds will look at the Hebrews as if the Hebrews are loath loathsome. Uh, in fact, the shepherds are Hebrews and the Hebrews will be loathsome to the Egyptians. And that's part of God's design. He's getting them into Egypt 
but sort of away enough from the bad climate of Egypt so they can be preserved as a nation. God prophetically has already said they're gonna be there for 400 years. And then I'm gonna bring them out and back into this land ultimately through the events of the Exodus, through the conquest of the land under Joshua, etc. So the first stage in all of it is getting God's people, Israel, out of Canaan down south into Egypt. And the man that God chooses to get this job done is a 17-year-old, the 11th born of Jacob's dozen, a man named Joseph. The wheels are sort of set in motion in Genesis chapter 37, where we learned of Joseph's coat, Joseph's dreams, Joseph's pit, and Joseph's enslavement all providentially part of the plan of God. Because God through this is gonna take Joseph and elevate him to second in command in Egypt when he's age 30. Of course, Joseph doesn't know all of that yet. He's had a few dreams indicating what's gonna to happen to him, but this is the plan of God so that the rest of the family of Jacob will, when a famine hits in Canaan, will leave Canaan Genesis 46. In fact, the chronologists say there's an exact date you can attach to Genesis 46. It's 1876 BC. They're going to leave in the midst of famine and they're going to seek help from Joseph, who will be second in command by the time he hits, hits age 30, who will be in a position to help them. That's the big picture. Genesis chapter 38 is why it's happening. Genesis 37 is what is happening. Genesis 38 is a, is a description of why God had to do this. If God had left his people in Canaan, they would have become just like the Canaanites. And you see Judah moving in that direction here with all of this immorality and things, about, things that we were reading about earlier and are going to study today. Judah is no lightweight. He is the fourth born from Jacob. And it's through his lineage that the Messiah is going to come. Genesis 49 verse 10 will indicate that by way of a prophecy given at the end of the book of Genesis. And so this is how bad it got for Judah, the fourth, fourth born, as he moved into gross immorality and started to do things that are sort of unthinkable. He became just like the Canaanite culture around him. And that would have happened to the whole nation had God not strategically made this move using, uh, out of the gate here, this 17-year-old named Joseph. Joseph is, when we get to chapter 39, is sort of juxtaposed against Judah. Judah caved into sexual temptation. Joseph, chapter 39, did not. Judah, chapter 38, did. Joseph, chapter 39, did not. The application here is pretty simple. Are, are you a Judah or are you a Joseph? 
the issue of sexual immorality is around us all of the time. And we have two examples. One we should not be like, and one we should be like. So what has happened as we moved into Genesis chapter 38 a couple of weeks ago is Judah takes a Canaanite wife, exactly what God says don't do, he did. And through that Canaanite wife come three sons. And then Judah, after taking this Canaanite wife, tries to marry these sons off to another Canaanite woman, his daughter-in-law named Tamar. The first son marries her and dies. The second son marries her and dies. That's what happened to Er and Onan. And then Shelah comes on the scene, and by this time, I guess Judah smartened up. Everybody that marries her dies. I don't want that to happen to number three. And so he basically makes a false promise to Tamar that you're going to be able to marry Shelah um, as he gets older. But for now, return to your father's house, when in reality he has absolutely no intention of allowing his thirdborn uh, to marry Tamar. So we pick it up here with, uh, you could actually entitle this, Tamar's Revenge. I mean, she's not happy with this. And her revenge is really recorded in verses 12 through 26. J. Vernon McGee, the great Bible teacher, called this the weirdest chapter of the Bible. And it is very weird because you're reading your, the Joseph story to your children and grandchildren and then all of a sudden you're reading chapter 38. Whoops, who put that in there? And I'm trying to explain to you why it's in there. It's in there to explain why God is raising up Joseph. All, all the other accounts of Joseph, the only thing they reveal is what that God is raising up Joseph. They don't explain why. But the why is answered in chapter 38 because this is what the entire nation would have disintegrated into had he left them alone in Canaan. One of the worst things that God can ever do to a person is to let them have their own way. That's why Romans 1 is so uh, intimidating. It says in Romans 1, God gave them over. It says that three times. You want, you want sin that bad? Okay, I'll, I'll let you alone. The fact that God is disciplining us because of sin, the fact that God is convicting us because of sin, you should praise the Lord for that. Because the worst thing in the world is for God to give a person over to their depraved sin nature, which will only bring destruction. God loves us too much to see us wreck ourselves. And this is why he disciplines, convicts, as any loving father would do. So we have the occasion, verses 12 through 14, and you have, first of all, the death of Judah's wife, verse 12. And it says there in Genesis 38 and verse 12, it says, Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So this is the Canaanite wife that these three sons came from. She dies. 
Um, we have the death of Shua's daughter or Judah's wife. She's identified back in verse 2. You notice in this chapter, a lot of people are dying. And in fact, that's one of the things I, I don't know if I should say this flippantly, but it's one of the things that, let me put it this way, it's one of the things I appreciate about the book of Genesis. It talks about people dying. You get to Genesis 5, you know, Adam lived 930 years and he died. Methuselah lived 969 years and he died and he died and he died and he died. Why does, it, why does Genesis keep saying that? Because that's what God said would happen in Eden, right? The day you eat from the tree of knowledge is the day you shall surely die. And that day they died. Their relationship with God was severed. And God said it's more than spiritual death. He said from dust you are to dust you shall return. And so Genesis is a book filled with death. We're living in a world filled with death because that's the consequence of sin. And we're talking here about the consequences of sin in this sermon entitled Sowing and Reaping. So we have the death of Judah's wife, and then you continue on in verse 12, and it says, And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to Timnah to his sheep uh, uh, shearers, I almost said sheep's hearers, but sheep shearers, there we go, at Timnah professional shepherds, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So after the period of mourning is over, he uh, travels about 12 miles northwest of Adulam to this particular place called Timna. If your eyes are really, really good, you can see it, but I can't even see it from where I am to this screen, but let me bend down a little bit if you don't mind me doing that. Adulam is uh, up north, excuse me, Timna is up north from Adulam. Well, you know, who cares about geography? Just get to the spiritual part, Pastor, please. I, I, I love the geography because the Bible wants us to understand that this is history that happened. I mean, these are like real people with real events in real time and space. You know, this is not story time. This is not Veggie Tales. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. What you have in Christianity is spiritual truth arising out of a credible historical context. And we need, to, we need to emphasize that over and over and over again because the world system thinks we're in here doing the religious thing while they in the classrooms are doing the historical thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you're in church, you're into archaeology. You have to develop a love for archaeology because you love the Bible and the Bible talks about archaeology. You have to develop um, a love for geology, history, geography, all subjects that I really never excelled in until I got saved. I got saved and I started having to brush up on these subjects because I love Jesus and I love the Bible. And the Bible talks about things like this. 
So he leaves uh, Adullam, he goes up kind of northwest 12 miles to Timnah, and it's there that Tamar figures out where he has gone, that's his, his daughter-in-law, verse who he just sent back to her father's house, verse 13, it says, Israel said to Joseph, no, Israel did not say to Joseph, because I was in the wrong chapter, <laughs> verse 13, but it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear, uh, to shear his sheep. So your father-in-law is in Timnah, and this gives Tamar an opportunity to develop a plan. The plan has a disguise, verse 14, a position, verse 14, and a reason for the plan, verse 14. First of all, the disguise. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself. So she's putting off the garments of widowhood and dressing like a prostitute. I'm glad people don't dress like prostitutes today. I mean, we all know the difference between attractive and seductive. Or maybe we don't know the difference anymore. There is such a thing in, in biblical truth as modesty. There's a big difference between attractiveness and seductiveness. And you better educate your children and your grandchildren on this real fast because they're going to get no tutoring from the world system that has taken the line and blurred it. So she's moving into the realm of prostitution uh, culturally, the veil was a sign in that time period of I am available as a prostitute. Shouldn't be a big shock because she is from the Canaanite civilization and sexual immorality in Canaan was off the charts. In fact, I've looked at some of the Canaanite archaeology when I was studying in seminary and there are statues and paintings and inscriptions that are so over the top and so completely and totally sexually grotesque, I could not even put those things up on our PowerPoint because they'd be inappropriate for the church world. That's what you're dealing with with the Canaanite civilization. So she's a Canaanite herself, and she understands all about prostitution, and so she, she dresses like one, and she takes a position on a particular road. It says she sat down in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. Uh, there's a reference to uh, Enam in Joshua 15 verse 34, it's a real geographical place like Timnah, and you can see Timnah, well you can't see it, but I can see it, Timnah, Enam, and Adullam all around that general area. So these, this is where these events transpired. And why is she doing this? Uh, verse 14, for she saw that Sheila, that's the third born, 
from Judah's wife that has already passed, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife, when in reality Judah never intended to give him to her as a wife, as we've seen. So it, the text doesn't say, but I might be reading a little, some, little more into this than what's there, hopefully not. I think she's ticked off. I think she's angry. I think she's realizes that she's been shorted. That is always a dangerous place to be in for any human being. Because when a person is harboring resentment towards another, they do things to get even, you know, don't get mad, get even, that they normally wouldn't do. This is why the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, it says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness is such an easy thing to move into, even as a Christian, because everybody in this fallen world gets hurt by somebody. And as a Christian who's been injured by somebody, you have a choice. You can either harbor, on, harbor that resentment, nurse the grudge, look at the old emails, look at the old pictures, or you can do what Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27 says, forgive as you have been forgiven. See, the Christian really doesn't have a right to harbor animosity towards somebody else. You don't even have a right, we don't have a right to treat someone else with justice because we've been treated with grace. In fact, Jesus in uh, Matthew 18, he told a whole parable about this. You remember the guy who was forgiven much and then he found another fellow that owed him, owed him just a, a small amount of money and he demanded that every penny be, doesn't say penny, but that's translation on my part there. Every penny be paid have him thrown in the debtor's prison. And the man looks ridiculous because he had been forgiven, let's say, $10 million and someone owed him $5. And it's so silly when you demand justice when you have been treated with grace. That's what grace is, right? Unmerited favor. And the person that had initially owned, it, owned him the money was very displeased with that, Matthew 18 and had him turned over to the torturers. Interesting choice of words. We become tortured in ourselves when we are unforgiving, when we don't forgive as God has forgiven us. See, forgiveness is not so much for the person that injured you, it's really for yourself. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison thinking it's going to hurt somebody else. When the truth of the matter is the only person that hurts is us. It hurts us emotionally, it hurts us spiritually, it hurts us psychologically. And so we need to be people who, uh, you know, do not let the sun go down on our anger. And forgive as we have been forgiven. Yeah, but pastor, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't, but I know what he did for you, Jesus. We treat other people with the grace that we have been given ourselves. 
Boy, that's the path to, you want to talk about positive mental attitudes. That'll fix a lot of mental attitudes right then and there. Just the the spirit of making a decision to, to treat someone as you've been treated. Now, notice I didn't say, now go back and put yourself into harm's way. I don't think there's a biblical case for, all right, now hit me again kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. I'm just advocating a, a, a mindset that says, you know what, I'm, I'm bothered by this, I'm upset by it, but I'm going to let it go. Because when the Lord turned my direction with grace, he let a lot of things go too. And I'm going to forgive as I have been forgiven. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I used to think, well, I need to move to Alaska then. But the truth of the matter is we just need to be forgiving people. It's part of our growth. And I, I don't think Tamar here is, I don't think she's a believer. She's a Canaanite. I don't think she understands that principle. And so she's plotting revenge. And so this leads to incest between Judah and his daughter-in-law. He is deceived into committing incest with her. Verses 15 through 18. You see the deception, verse 15. Some bargaining, verses 16 through 18. And then finally the unholy, incestuous relationship. End of verse 18. First of all, notice the deception that Tamar engages in. Verse 15 of Genesis 38 it says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, therefore Judah, who had earlier deceived Jacob, initiating the selling of Joseph, now himself is deceived. Isn't that interesting? Judah, who deceived Jacob concerning what happened to Joseph, is himself deceived. Now, you'll find this over and over again in the book of Genesis. Jacob was the deceiver, Genesis 27, yet he himself was deceived later on in the book of Genesis by Laban. It says of that transaction, now the deceiver is being deceived. Although the motivations differ from good to bad, this is divine retribution in four ways. First, now this is taking us back to um, the, the marrying Leah instead of Rachel. He was deceived. First, Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night, and neither could see well as a result. Second, this... Jacob is deceived by being presented the older for the younger, the reversal of Isaac's presentation of Jacob for Esau. Third, Isaac thought Jacob was Esau and Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. Fourth, Jacob pretended to be his older brother while Leah pretended to be her younger sister. And, and now with uh, this situation here concerning Judah who deceived Jacob concerning what happened to Joseph, now Judah himself is being deceived. He's being deceived by his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum says here again, there is a form of retribution. Jacob deceived Isaac with goat skins. Now Jacob was being deceived with goat's blood. Furthermore, Jacob deceived Isaac with Esau's clothes. Now Jacob was deceived by the use of Joseph's clothes. I'm just giving you all of these different examples where this happens over and over again. That's why I've entitled this lesson, Sowing and Reaping. This is one of the things that God allows us to walk through. You, you, you come against someone, or you abuse someone, or you mistreat someone, or you deceive someone. Don't be shocked if your walk is such that God allows you to experience almost the identical circumstances that you inflicted on somebody else. Because only when it comes back your direction, you know, what comes around goes around, can we really see the magnitude of sin. I mean, it's easy to be light on sin when we're inflicting it on somebody else. But when somebody else is inflicting it upon us, it's completely different. I mean, we gossip about somebody, no big deal, but then we discover a bunch of people are gossiping about us, and we say, hey, that hurts. And God says, I've organized your life so that you will understand that it hurts. Because only if you understand that it hurts will you be less likely to do it again. And this is what we call growth. Growing as a Christian. This, this, uh, this pattern keeps showing up over and over again in the book of Genesis. So the deceiver is deceived. And um, the deception occurs, verse 15. She's a prostitute. She has the cultural veneer of a prostitute. She has no, he has no idea that it's Tamar. And now comes the bargaining, verse 16 beginning with Judah's solicitation. He's soliciting a prostitute right now that he does not know is his daughter-in-law. Verse 16, it says, So he turned back to her by the road. You know, it's interesting language here. He turned back, turned aside. It's really not the first look that gets you. It's the second look. I mean, all of us have bad thoughts. I think it was one of the Protestant reformers that said, you know, you can't, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly stop them from building a nest in your hair. All of us have all kinds of thoughts. The issue is what are we gonna do with those thoughts? Once, once the first look becomes a second look and you start to ruminate and fantasize, now we're moving in the wrong direction. And a lot of sin in our lives could be avoided by doing what Joseph is going to model in the next chapter where he leaves so fast regarding being seduced by Potiphar's wife Joseph being 17 years old, at probably at the height of his sexual desires, being seduced by a woman who I would have to think would be very, very attractive because she was the wife of Potiphar, 
who is a high-ranking person in Egypt, that's a man that could have probably had any woman he wanted to have. And Joseph, at the height of his sexual desires at the age of 17, is being tempted by her, and he leaves so quick that he leaves his cloak behind, and she uses that out of bitterness to accuse him of rape. I mean, if Judah had done what Joseph did, Judah would have not have fallen into this trap. It's not the first look that gets you. It's the second look, which turns into the third look, etc. Verse 16, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his uh, daughter-in-law. So he's in a state of deception. He doesn't know it's her because she's veiled. And the reason she's veiled is because that's the cultural sign for prostitution in that time period. So Tamar makes a request, and she says in verse 16, she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Payment. Payment for sex. Prostitution. Oldest profession in the world. Old is the book of Genesis. So we have Judah now making an offer, verse 17, he said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Notice he says, I will send you the goat. So you don't get the goat now. Tamar's a pretty good negotiator, to be honest with you. Not that I'm commending her morality here, but it says here in verse 17, she said, moreover, Will you give me a pledge until you send the goat? I want some collateral until the goat shows up. Verse 18, Judah's asking here, what kind of collateral do you need? Or what kind of collateral do you want? Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? Tamar clarifies. Verse 18, it says, and she said, your seal, your cord, your staff that is in your hand. Now, the seal, the cord, and the staff identify Judah. And this is how Judah gets caught. She has within her custody things that are personal items to him. And then you see the actual incest there in verse 18. So he gave them to her. It's amazing the things that we give away in the heat of the moment. Uh, it's amazing the, the sale of the birthright for some stew or some porridge. I mean, it's amazing the things that we will give up that are of value when we're so far down the temptation road that is being dangled in front of us. I mean, we just do stupid things when we go this direction. I mean, we give things away we shouldn't give away. I mean, what, what can you really exchange for your honor or your integrity or your reputation? I mean, I can't, I can't think of more valuable things that a human being could possess than those things. And people will just sell them down the river 
for a moment of pleasure. And that's what's happening to Judah. I mean, we understand he's the fourth born and because of prophecy that's going to be given of him, the Messiah is going to come from this guy. I mean, you see the moral disintegration of the nation. You see why God is raising up Joseph to get them out of here. Or this behavior is going to be repeated throughout God's people. A, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The actual incest sexual morality is given there in verse 18 so she so he gave them to her and went into her oh oh and she conceived by him verse uh, 18 so the sexual sin takes place what does the bible say about sexual sin do you have 24 hours for me to go through all the passages Probably not. Here's one that stands out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. That's not easy to do today when you've got computer screens everywhere. You double click and there you are. That's not easy to do today You know when your family and you are watching the Super Bowl and the halftime show comes on. But in spite of the ease of licentiousness in our time period, the last time I checked, this injunction from God has not changed. God has a blueprint for sexuality. Whenever I talk about it, people get mad at me as if I invented it. I'm not the inventor. God is the inventor. It's one man for one woman for one life. Heterosexual monogamy. Yeah, but pastor, a lot of people have fallen short of the standard. I understand that, but there's still a standard. We're living in a society right now where we don't even know if there's a standard anymore. We've violated it so many times. But God has a standard, and he has the right to give the standard as the creator And we have the responsibility as the creation to submit to his authority. I loved uh, what Dr. David Reagan shared from this pulpit last Sunday. I love what he said in the the Q&A too. He says, you know, this book here, this is not God's, this is not man's search for God. This is God's word to man. We, We are not here to correct this book. We are here to figure out what this says and submit to its authority in all areas. And a lot of people in the church world, they don't want to do that. It's called the prophecy of the itching ears. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, characteristic of the end of the church age. People assembling teachers all around them, wanting them to reinforce their own ideas. By the way, you can build a big church doing stuff like that. You can even fill up athletic arenas doing stuff like that. I'm not going to go further. If somebody wants a golden calf, a ministerial calf maker will be provided. 
they're not hard to find. But it's very, very difficult to find a community of Christians that want to approach church the way Paul explains church in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, that the church is the pillar of truth. A pillar holds things up. There's several pillars around this room. You take away one of those pillars, you have a problem. That's what a pillar does. This is why the United States of America has, has gone basically crazy. Because the pillar of the truth is not being the pillar. The church is supposed to be the place where the pulpits are aflame with the righteousness of God. You realize that's what Alexis de Tocqueville said in the 1800s when he came to America as a Frenchman and tried to figure out what makes America tick. Why is the American experiment so different than what he encountered in France, which had come off the French Revolution? What makes America different? And de Tocqueville, and the best I, best I understand about Alexis de Tocqueville is he was not a believer. He was an observer. He said what makes America different is the church world. The pulpits in America are aflame with the righteousness of God. And it's affecting the entire culture. And he said, your average American cannot, in their mind, separate Christianity from public affairs. Do, do you realize that, that what just happened in the House of Representatives, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, went and offered a prayer in the House of Representatives at the invitation of the Speaker of the House? And in that prayer, he put together information from George Washington, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, and read the prayer. And he was only given two minutes to give the prayer. Do you realize that there has been a petition filed against him and that prayer and any similar prayers in the House of Representatives? Because it it contained within it the language father, which is discriminatory allegedly against the trans community. I mean, do we understand that what's happening in this country, that we're, we're being forced to leave our Bible at home and look at public life through a different set of lenses? That's... Alexis de Tocqueville said that's not the secret of America's greatness. What, what the secret is, and he could find nothing like this in France, that Americans combine biblicism with public life to such an extent that you can't even separate the two. So we've come a long way, haven't we? The incest takes place. I haven't even finished this verse yet. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Wow. 
First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's something my dad uh, always told me growing up. He said, do not let your friends pick you. You pick your friends. Because he understood these principles of scripture that show me your friends, show me the crowd you run with, I'll show you exactly what your life is going to be like 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's why God has to raise up Joseph to get Jacob and his family out of Canaan where they would have obviously morally disintegrated and incubated in a place called uh, Goshen. And that's the trajectory that's gonna be taking place in the book of Genesis. And then Tamar departs. It says in verse 19, they said to one another, no, it doesn't say that in verse 19, because I was in the wrong chapter. See, what's going on here is I told the guys, I heat up fast, so turn the fan on. The downside is I may accidentally find myself in the wrong chapter. It says, then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Look at how fast she went from prostitution back to widowhood. Widow, prostitute. Prostitute, widow. No problem. Just switch the clothes around and, and there you are. So she goes back to the way it was before, which, which is sort of what happens after sin. I mean, we just think whatever stays in Vegas, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No problem. I'm just going to go back to normal. It doesn't work that way. When we move into sin, we open up a door of consequences that we weren't thinking about on the front end. And these long-term consequences have a tendency to stick around a lot longer than the window of pleasure that sin, sin afforded. I am not gonna lie to you, sin is fun. There is pleasure in a moment of sin. It's, it actually says that in Hebrews concerning Moses, how he chose to suffer along with his people rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Passing pleasures of sin, it's there. But so are the long-term consequences. You, you, you can pick your sin, but you can't pick the consequences. That's what, that's what the flesh never tells you. And certainly the devil, the father of lies, will never communicate that to you either. And so here come the, here come the consequences. It's kind of like David. Remember David? Adultery with Bathsheba. One night stand. No problem, in his mind anyway. Second Samuel eleven twenty four and 25, David sent messengers and took her, that's Bathsheba, and she came to him and lay with him. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. 
and everything's over, right? Oh, no, it goes on here. And the woman conceived, and she told David, I'm pregnant. Didn't count on that. Sin never tells you things like that. Whatever the consequence is, it's never communicated on the front end. It's just dangled in front of us like a carrot. Look at the momentary pleasure that sin will bring. So at this point, Judah sort of wakes up and he... um, I don't know if it's a moment of of guilt, but he wants to make good on the goat. (laughs) I mean, he wants his, what was it, his ring and and other things, the cord. What's the other thing? His staff. He wants those back, personal items. So let's, let's at least deliver the goat. And so he attempts to make payment, verses 20 through 23. He searches sends a friend, same guy, to search for this prostitute. Verse uh, 20, it says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend and by the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So this creates a problem. Verse 21, he asked the men of her place saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enam? But they said there has been no temple prostitute here because there wasn't a temple prostitute. It was his daughter-in-law. Verse 22, Judah has to make a decision So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. When we move off into sin, thinking that our plan is going to be executed, what God does is he allows our plans to be spoiled. And things really don't work out the way we thought they would work out. This um, exact same thing happened to Reuben because remember, the brothers were going to kill Joseph. And Reuben says, well, let's just throw him into the pit. And Reuben thought back in the last chapter, I'm just going to go grab Joseph out of the pit. But things didn't work out that way. While Reuben was gone, Joseph was sold to the Egyptians. And so Genesis 39, 37 verse 29 says, but when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. This is the kind of thing that happens. You, you, you do something that's wrong. You kind of have crafted um, a way in it, around it, and through it and then God suddenly throws a monkey wrench into things. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just give her the goat. I'll get my three things back. End of story. And his plans are being wrecked here. He's being told there is no temple prostitute here. Verse uh, 20, 23. And this leads to Judah's revelation. 
verses 24 through 26. We now have a report to Judah. Verse 23, he said, then Judah said, let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. She is also with child by harlotry. Three months later, he's told, you know, your daughter-in-law played the harlot and is with child. So Judah (laughs) gives his verdict. It's unbelievable. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Who, Who does this remind you of? Does this not remind you of David? Remember Nathan the prophet confronted David? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And he described the situation where someone powerful took advantage of somebody that was not powerful, trying to get David to fess up to what he did with the murder of Uriah the Hittite so he could sweep under the rug his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. It says, when Nathan the prophet told him this story, which was supposed to provoke David to repentance, it says in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 through 7, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you're the man. You know, it's interesting to watch people that are caught in a particular area of sin before they're caught. How completely and totally angry and self-righteous they can appear pointing out that identical sin in someone else's life. Keep keep that in mind, because there's a lot of finger pointers out there. we got a lot of them in the church, quite frankly. People that will condemn and criticize when they see some deficiency in someone else. What you'll discover over the course of time is a lot of the time, those people have the exact same sin in their own lives. And, And this is what's happening with Judah. This is what's happening with David. So Judah, and I'm not sure why he would have the authority necessarily to impose the death penalty. Bring her out and let her be burned. Uh, Maybe that's, he thought he had that authority because he was the fourth born, you know, some kind of patriarchal authority. And then Tamar Tamar gives, gives her defense. Verse 25, it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man whom these things belong. And she said, please examine these things. Whose are these? Signet ring, cord, staff, collateral, which identifies Judah. So Judah has to fess up, doesn't he? Verse 26. 
So Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Now, when he makes this statement here in verse 25, she's more righteous than I, it's a comparative statement. She's not righteous. But compared to him, she is righteous. Because he lied to her about you can have Sheila as a marital partner, fully intending not to give his third son to her. So he is recognizing that the whole thing could have been avoided, it could have been averted if he had kept his share of the bargain all the way back in verse 11 and not misled her. What a total mess this thing is. Why is this in our Bible? Number one, it's there to show us how bad things were getting in Canaan so God had to get them out of Canaan into Egypt through Joseph. Number two, and we'll see this next time, verses 27 through 30, no, no matter how bad it got, God worked in it and through it. God did not approve of it. God did not condone it, but he used it. Because one of those children that's going to be born from all of this is uh, an individual named Perez who's in the line leading to Jesus. So God <laughs> used this to further extend the messianic line. It's astounding what God did here. What, what does the Bible say? It says all things, what? Work together for good to those that love God and are, are called according to his purpose. And don't misstate the Bible here. The Bible doesn't say all things are good. I hear this verse quoted constantly. All things are good. That's not what the Bible says. It never says all things are good. It says God works together all things for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so you may be here and thinking to yourself, I've just messed up a bunch of stuff. I've messed up a bunch of stuff in, in my life. Well, first of all, join the club. People say the problem with Sugarland Bible Church is there's just too many hypocrites over there. And our response is, well, we always got room for one more. <laughs> but even though we do things in sin which are destructive, take heart in this, that God can actually use it and will use it to accomplish something big because that's the nature of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Genesis 38 and what it communicates to us. We do ask, Lord, if anybody is here and they do not know you personally, that they would understand the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected. His final words, it is finished. That he stepped out of eternity into time to fix a problem that we can't fix. And he asks us, he commands us, to not trust in ourselves for our salvation, but to trust in what he did for us 2,000 years ago. 
I pray anybody in the sound of my voice that has never exercised faith in the finished work of Jesus right now would do that. As we understand, Lord, that it's not a matter of joining a church, giving money, walking an aisle, raising a hand, praying a prayer. It's just something so simple that we stumble over it. It couldn't be that easy. To believe, which biblically means to trust in what Jesus did. And as we do that, Lord, we, we claim your promise that we are your children. We are eternally yours, forgiven past, present, and future. I pray many, many people within the sound of my voice, either in the building or listening online or watching after the fact, would take this opportunity. For today is the day of salvation. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said... Thank <laughs> you.